So we're looking again at uh, Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read again uh, a few verses from verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. Over a number of weeks now, on the occasions where we've looked at um, uh, Luke, we're building up to uh, Jesus' death on the cross, his crucifixion, and ultimately his uh, rise from the tomb again. And we've been considering uh, one question in particular why did Jesus die? Why, why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? What were the purposes of God in this? We've seen uh, some evidence when we've looked at this before that there was a, a plan of destruction. The evil one has a plan of destruction that's working its way through. So he's, he's using uh, Judas in that. He's using some other figures to try to bring an end to Jesus' life. Actually, there's a far better plan that's working out at exactly the same time. God's plan to bring salvation. That's why... Ultimately, Jesus was going to the cross. Um, But we can see a whole number of different facets to it. So before, we said, well, why did Jesus die? It was to be, as it were, the ultimate Passover lamb, to fulfill uh, the Jewish festival of Passover, where um, a lamb or a goat was slaughtered and the the blood was used to ward off the angel of the death, to ward off judgment um, back in Exodus. Uh, We've seen more recently as well how in answer to the question, why did Jesus die? Another answer is, well, Jesus died to be our example. He, he died to, to be our hero, one that we should follow, one that we should imitate. We see in the way that he prays in a crisis, the way he relates with his father, the way he does the will of his father. He's incredibly demonstrating um, a perfect life to be our example, therefore, to be our hero. We've got to go beyond that, though. It's not... Sufficient just to leave things there. I think Mahatma Gandhi uh, agrees that Jesus was a great example by his death on the cross. He was a wonderful example of, of personal sacrifice. But he would have said, and many others would say, it was just that. There was nothing else to it. Um, we might admire him, um, but nothing else was achieved other than demonstrating uh, an example of someone sacrificing themselves. Just another martyr um, among many. We're going to look at another answer to that question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross today? And that answer that we'll look at today is uh, to be our substitute. To be our substitute. A substitute is a person acting or serving in place of another. So uh, modern day examples of that might be in sports where someone's on the field, football, hockey, whatever, They get injured, and so the manager decides to substitute them, bring on a fresh pair of legs, uh, someone who can take their place effectively, 
and take part in the game. Or maybe someone just isn't performing that well. A big day has arrived, and uh, the manager notices that someone out on pitch has basically choked, and they're not performing to their usual standard, or maybe they need to make some uh, tactical adjustments. And so for that reason, bring on a substitute, someone who can play in that position and, uh, and do what the manager wants. Other examples of, uh, of substitutes? Uh, there are some funny ones that you might be aware of recently. Um, heads of state, celebrities often have um, uh, comedy lookalikes, uh, unofficial lookalikes that are used. Um, and so I think T-Mobile have recently done one with uh, Prince William and, uh, and Kate and uh, their own version of the royal wedding, just entirely, looking a car- entirely using a cast of substitutes. And obviously, therefore, they can do kind of funny things that wouldn't really have happened um, on such an important occasion. Also, heads of state, the likes of Winston Churchill, probably Barack Obama, maybe in our own nation as well, probably have official lookalikes, um, so that if they're in a very, very dangerous situation, actually, they can just, as it were, make an appearance, but it's not really them. Uh, I guess, by definition, we wouldn't know a great deal about the occasions when that has taken place, but I think there are. Uh, official lookalikes for that reason. In film, you have a substitute in every stuntman and woman who will come on to set to do um, what the actor or actress can't in a particularly risky or dangerous uh, situation. So a whole raft of, of substitutes that we might see in, uh, in our own times here where a person acts or serves in place of another. Jesus willingly died on the cross in order to be a substitute for us, in order to serve and act in our place. And in order to see what sort of substitute he was, we will consider today the contents of two cups. We're going to look at an incredibly good cup. And we're going to look at an incredibly painful cup. Scripture sometimes uses... The, the image of a, of a cup, a cup of drink, as something that is uh, tremendously uh, appealing and satisfying. And we see, might see examples um, of this in, say, the Psalms, Psalm 23, a very well-known uh, Psalm, David, begins, the Lord is my shepherd. In verse 5, it says this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And he goes on to say, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. An incredibly uh, positive image there. Also in Psalm 116 and verse 13, we see another example there um, of of a good cup. The psalmist there says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. This is a, a good cup. And that, uh, the cup there is used to uh, picture something that's overflowing with goodness and love or overflowing with salvation. And earlier in, uh, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20, Jesus has announced to his uh, disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. He was figuratively giving them a cup a good cup that represented things that were overflowing, goodness, love, a cup of salvation poured out for them. 
In particular, what is in that cup? Well, in Matthew 26 and verse 28, covering the same account, as it were, uh, of Jesus approaching his own death on the cross, um, celebrating the Lord's Supper with the disciples. In Matthew 26, verse 28, um, it records there that Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so what is in this cup that he is giving to his disciples and also giving to us um, by virtue of being his disciples is a cup that is overflowing with forgiveness of sins. Jesus gave this very good cup, this cup of salvation that is overflowing with forgiveness, overflowing in a sense with friendship. Again, just in in modern everyday life, if you, um, if you are offered uh, a drink, if someone says, uh, can I buy the next round? Or says, how about you come over for a cup of tea? It, it might sound quite trivial, but there are just little ways in which in our culture we would um, we'd express friendship. We'd show, look, I'm, um, I'm wanting to get to know you. And I want to, just maybe in a small way, uh, do something to, to bless you. And so I'm, I'm going to offer you a drink. Um, so... Maybe that's not always the case. There is a fabled account of how um, Winston Churchill must have got on someone's nerves. Um, and uh, a, a woman once said to him, uh, if, I, if, I were your, if, if you were my husband, I would give you poison. Um, and obviously she wasn't looking to bless him at that point. Uh, in one of the greatest comebacks of all time, uh, Winston Churchill replied, and if I were your husband... I would take it. Um, which was, uh, but like I say, on the whole, if someone offers you a drink, that's probably a good thing. That's probably a good sign. I don't think there are many people who think, right, here's my opportunity to offer you poison. Um, offering a drink, a sign of hospitality, a sign of friendship. Here is Jesus with his disciples offering them a very, very good cup. Overflowing with salvation. Overflowing with forgiveness and friendship. Um, this is the cup that he has offered to us. And that we have received, if we have accepted Jesus um, as the one and only Son of God who came to save us. This is a very good cup that is worth savouring, it's worth celebrating, and it is still on offer to everyone today. This is not a cup that is um, just limited to a very, very select few. This is a cup that won't run dry This cup of complete and total forgiveness of sins is available to anyone who's willing and desires to receive it. That is the wonderful good news that we have. That is the very, very, very good cup. And as we've been reading the the passage that we looked at earlier, uh, from verse 39 onwards, we see another cup. And as we see this cup, we start to understand how Jesus became our substitute what it meant for him to go to the cross. He says in Luke 22, verse um, 42, praying to Almighty God, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus has offered to his disciples a wonderful cup. In the garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, as he is praying, Our Saviour is contemplating an altogether different cup. A cup that is not pleasant in the slightest. 
it becomes increasingly evident that that is the case because in verse 44 it says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Um, the original word there that is rendered in anguish, that's the only occasion that intensely negative word is used in the New Testament. And it is used to describe how Jesus felt approaching his own death. He was in anguish. This is intense. This is not trivial, easy, straightforward. This is not something that could just be, uh, at this kind of late hour, could just be ignored, as it were. Jesus is contemplating a horrendous, horrendous cup. So, in the cup that we looked at earlier on, we saw there was overflowing forgiveness, salvation, friendship, love and grace. What is in this cup? Why was Jesus in such anguish um, as he was praying to his heavenly Father? Take this away. If, there's any, if, there, if, if there is some way, Lord, would you t- please take this cup from me? It could be, some might suggest, that when Jesus looked into that cup, what he was seeing was his own painful, physical death. He was going to be scourged, he was going to be beaten, he was going to be, uh, he was going to be whipped, and ultimately he was going to be nailed to a cross. Uh, the saviour who designed the nerves that run through this part of our wrist was contemplating having those nerves um, uh, severed and, uh, and, and run through with a nail. Was that what Jesus was ultimately considering? The, the physical pain that he was about to experience on the cross? Or perhaps the, uh, the mental anguish, the emotional pain that he knew that at this point the shepherd was going to be struck, all the sheep would scatter. In other words, that he would go to this completely alone. None of his friends uh, would be around him, they would desert him, they would leave him. Indeed, some have betrayed him. And the very people in places of religious authority in the nation who should have accepted him and recognized him as saviour were going to reject him, uh, insult him, mock him, and falsely accuse him uh, in a trial that we'll look at um, on another occasion. Is that what Jesus was looking at when he looked into um, this cup before him in the garden. Those things obviously are are, are also not insignificant. But consider this, that, that many martyrs have gone to their deaths boldly, having been betrayed, and they may not have exhibited this particular reaction. I'm reading recently about William Tyndall, William Tyndale is basically responsible for giving us the Bible um, in English, for translating it into English um, when uh, King Henry VIII was on the throne. Uh, Before that, it had been um, in Latin, and also the church was horrendously corrupt. And so for him to study so hard to translate um, into English, first of all the New Testament, he was endangering his life. And he exiled himself, fled to the continent, and basically, whilst studying, whilst writing down, um, and translating the word of God as faithfully as he could, uh, he was living on his nerves, aware that 
bounty hunters would be out there. And ultimately, they succeeded in deceiving him into thinking that they were really for the same cause. Um, and then bringing him to his death. He and others went boldly to their deaths. Even in the, um, the reality of having been uh, betrayed. So is Jesus here primarily considering the painful death physically that he is about to experience? I think the answer is no. I think we begin to see what is in this cup when we consider uh, other parts of Scripture. We've seen earlier on that the Bible used the image of the cup um, to talk about very positive things, goodness and love overflowing. It also um, uses the image of the cup to talk about things that are at the very other end of the spectrum. So, for example, in Isaiah, in chapter 51, uh, reading from verse 17, in a section there that in my Bible at least is, um, the editors have put in the title, The Cup of the Lord's Wrath. It says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the, co- the goblet that makes men stagger. Looking at a cup here that is described as a cup of wrath. A cup, as it were, of God's anger against their sin. And we see other examples of this for, um, in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 23. Ezekiel's prophesying there... Um, as it were, to two sisters, which are figuratively meant to mean um, Jerusalem and Samaria, two different kingdoms in Israel that both at different times had had wandered away from God and wandered away from true worship to worship idols. And in Ezekiel 23, verse, um, well, we'll read from verse 32. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You will drink from your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision for it holds so much. You'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry. You will, uh, you will dash it to pieces and tear your breasts. So a cup here that is of, of wrath, God's anger, a cup of ruin and desolation, a cup um, that is evidently not good. So Jesus was contemplating this bitter cup of ruin and desolation and the anger of God against sin. Now, we can be um, sensitive to the word um, wrath, um, concerned perhaps that um, surely God isn't kind of a a, a, a vengeful um, figure who just loses his temper indiscriminately, um, has kind of got like a short fuse... Um, that is not really what that, is, uh, that word there is, is getting at. What this is training us to, to consider is that through the passing of time, a holy and a pure God who had to cast Adam and Eve out of a garden because of their sin doesn't become strangely intolerant and different to sin. God's disposition is to hate everything that is not perfect and that is not holy, that does not reflect him. Um, God doesn't kind of just um, ignore 
or become indifferent by things that contravene his holy, perfect standards. So as Jesus was in the garden, he was contemplating this cup, a cup that actually he did not deserve in the slightest, but a cup that was full to overflowing with God's anger at sin. He is praying alone about this cup, which he alone is now facing. If, if we consider the cup just to be a painful death, the painful death of a martyr, then actually there are many people through the course of the Bible and through the course of church history who've had to drink from that cup, who've been martyred for their faith and have experienced excruciating death uh, for what they believe. There's only one person, and that is the Lord Jesus, who has considered and contemplated this cup, a bitter cup, full of ruin, desolation, and the wrath of God. Um, God's fury or anger against all sin is foaming up in a cup which Jesus knows he has been asked by Almighty God to drain to its dregs in the place of us, in the place of all the wicked of the earth, in our place. Jesus is our substitute because he gave the cup that he deserved. He deserved a cup that was full and overflowing, forgiveness, salvation, love, the Father's pleasure, the Father's acceptance and joy. That was the cup that he deserved. And the way I picture it almost is like a small revolving table where I sit down at my place and I consider uh, this cup that is before me. Before me, on this small circular table, is the cup that I deserve for all the things I've done wrong. And I look into that cup, and there might be some things in there that um, are more prominent to my eyes. It's all rubbish, it's all grot, it's all filth, and it's all mine. Maybe there are certain things in there I think, ah, yeah, I particularly remember that. Oh, that I'm particularly ashamed of. What have I done? And maybe I'd even hear the voice of a holy judge saying, "What what have you done? That's not good. That is not right. And so that is the cup that is before me. And I think, there's no way in a million years I want to drink that. There's no way I want to drain this cup to the dregs which contains all my sin and contains all of God's wrath against my sin because I've disobeyed his holy standards. I don't want to drink that. That is not appetizing in the slightest. But the other side of this table, there is another place. And sat at that place is Jesus. And opposite Jesus is the cup that he deserves. And that cup, as, we've, as I've just described, one that is overflowing with love, one that is overflowing with goodness, one that is overflowing with God's acceptance, God's favor, God's blessing. In that cup are the words, This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. That is, by its appearance, a tremendously appetizing and appealing cup. I would really like to have that cup instead of mine. But this is the one I deserve. And that's the one that Jesus deserves. Jesus is our substitute because he chose to revolve the table. And so as as my cup leaves my place and heads, makes its way round to Jesus, his cup comes round to my place. 
And so now, Jesus is contemplating the cup. And perhaps he can hear the voice of Almighty God saying, What have you done? Look at all that filth. Look at all that sin. What have you done? I now get to hear the words, You're my son, in whom I'm well pleased. My favor, my love, my grace, my eternal acceptance is on you. I receive that cup, and I have drunk from that cup, because Jesus took the other one as my substitute. Indeed, all our substitutes In the book, um, When God Weeps, uh, Stephen Estes and Johnny Erickson Tarder uh, wrote this. Of course, the Son, Jesus, is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The Father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. And this is a bit that gets me. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The Father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks, drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. That's what it meant for Jesus to go to the cross. Is it therefore any wonder that he said, Father, if you're willing, or as the other, uh, I think it's Mark, the other gospel writer says, all things are possible for you. If it's possible, please take this cup from me, that yet not my will be done, but yours be done. Jesus knew what the arrangement was. If he leaves us with the cup that we deserve, we have no hope of forgiveness. We have no hope of eternal life. We have no hope of relationship with God. If he doesn't take that cup then that we deserve, it rests still in our position. In a detail that Luke adds here, it says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. That, that detail is one that only Luke um, adds in at this point, but it's, it's clear whichever gospel account you're Um, you're reading that in effect when Jesus prays Father if you're willing take this cup from me the answer from heaven is one of silence instead um, from from heaven comes an angel to to strengthen him and and maybe that strength strengthening would be this is the cup that you need to take but there is a joy that's still set before you you will bring many, many sons to glory and you will be received, ascended and risen into heaven as our, the one and only saviour for all time. Perhaps the angel was bringing that kind of strength and encouragement to the saviour, but it remained the, the case that that cup was not taken away. Jesus became our substitute. We're just going to look at a few implications. What does this, what does this mean for us? that Jesus is our substitute? What does it mean that Jesus took that cup? First of all, it it means this, that we have a clear conscience before Almighty God. 
the table, as it were, has revolved. And we have now received an altogether different cup. And the cup that was in our position, was our place, has been taken by the Saviour. It means this, that Jesus didn't pick and choose which of our sins he was willing to die for. They weren't all categorised um, and then kind of parceled out. And so Jesus maybe thought, well, I will, uh, I'll leave them with the really nasty stuff to try and uh, atone for themselves. Now, Jesus wasn't kind of selective. Everything, everything went into the cup that he drained on our behalf. Um, what I mentioned earlier on, as I, look into, um, as I look into my cup, as I look into my life, there, there could be things within that that I'd say, well, that, okay, God may have forgiven me of this and this and this, but I can't, yeah, there's this thing in particular, and I, I know I did that, and I, I can't seem to shake, um, shake the shame of that one in particular, or maybe, um, like me, you've probably got a few contenders for what you might consider to be your, your worst sin. Um, we have a clear conscience before Almighty God because everything went into that cup. And this is still what is on offer to all of us uh, and to those who haven't accepted uh, Christ as Saviour, who haven't uh, received the good cup that he wants to give yet, um, that offer remains of a completely clear conscience. Jesus took the punishment for every sin and therefore even if there were um, recorded somewhere a record of our own personal wrong, our own personal sin, if it did exist somewhere in a filing cabinet of the universe, we'd draw it out, we could look at every item on the list, we could, we could thumb through it, and next to every item on that list would be Jesus' name, would be Jesus' signature. In other words, Jesus took it, Jesus owned it as, as, it, as it were, as if he had committed it himself. As we looked at that quote earlier on, Jesus was treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. That includes the very worst things I might consider about myself and the very worst things that you might consider about yourself. There is nothing that Jesus has not died to forgive us from. Hallelujah. So we have a clear conscience before Almighty God. It also means this. Understanding that Jesus is our substitute, understanding the contents of those two cups that we've looked at today, means this, that we take sin seriously. Having a clear conscience, knowing that God has justified us once and for all, knowing that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, all of that means... um, that we take sin seriously, it doesn't mean that sin um, no longer really matters because Jesus, is, well, he's dealt with it. He's dealt with it anyway. It means that we, we in recognising all that Jesus has done, we don't get blasé with, um, with personal sin. And so, um, from Matthew 5, verse 30, it won't be that many weeks ago uh, since Mark was preaching there, at the verse that says, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. It's not a case of suddenly, no, you, oh, well, you, you, you have to try and clean yourself up. Uh, it's not a case that we have to somehow try and atone for all of the sins that we committed since becoming a Christian. No, Jesus has done it. Jesus has cleansed us. Jesus has made us uh, whiter than wool. 
But it does mean, surely, we want to be ruthless with anything that we notice in our own lives in the present that actually is sinful and that Jesus died to forgive us and to cleanse us from. It's not a kind of a, well, it doesn't really matter. Sometimes we can just think, well, sin is just something... I, it's not a big deal, that one. I can handle that one. I can, I'm going to make sure that, that it doesn't go too far. I know it's probably not great, scripturally speaking, that this kind of pattern of lifestyle maybe over here has started to develop, or, uh, or this um, demonstration of hot-temperedness uh, has come about in me. Um, I'm, I'm sure I can handle it. No, Jesus died to handle it. Let's be ruthless with whatever we notice in our own lives. We need to take sin seriously. Thirdly, understanding the contents of these cups, understanding the contents of the cup that Jesus was contemplating whilst in the garden, the cup of God's wrath. Um, we don't suddenly, therefore, become um, vengeful people. Um, you know, all this talk of the wrath of God doesn't mean that we want people to experience the wrath of God. No, we've, we've received wonderful mercy, and therefore, we forgive freely. We've got a clear conscience, we take sin seriously, but we also forgive freely. We have not received our comeuppance, so we don't want other people to. And therefore, if, if we have anything against another person... The appropriate response, as soon as we realize that, is, is forgiveness. Just think back through the past, the past week or the past couple of days. Have, have there been any occasions where you have felt riled or angry by something that has taken place, maybe something that has been said, something that has been done, something that maybe hasn't been done that you were hoping would have been done by a close friend or whoever, Have there been any situations in which you have felt that kind of anger of injustice? That's not right. I've been wronged. I've been hurt. If thinking about it recently, kind of going through my own recent life, I'm thinking if I if there's ever a moment where I feel angry, the chances are at that very point I should either be repenting or I should either be forgiving. Whatever I do, I don't just want to leave it. Because if I leave it, what can just settle is, um, is a bitterness. And so I, I'm, I'm grateful to come before God and sing my praise and enjoy his grace. But I'm still recording someone else's wrongs in here. I'm still just keeping a note of how other people maybe have just not kind of lived up to what would be right by the standard of scripture. Um, I need to take that list and I say, actually, God, forgive me for my own hardness of heart. Or I need to take it and say, Lord, I forgive that person. Are we, are we deliberate in forgiving other people? Or does it not really matter that much and will continue? We don't want to be a people who are wishing vengeance on others or wanting revenge, uh, wanting people to, to get what's coming to them. Sometimes in really dramatic situations, we can be aware of the need. No, I must forgive, I must forgive. If something truly heinous has taken place. Sometimes it's just the small stuff. It's just the day-to-day. Are we deliberate in forgiving one another? 
because we understand the grace of God that's demonstrated here um, when Jesus took the cup that we deserve. Are we freely forgiving? Are we accepting one another because Christ has accepted us? Or are we, are we allowing any situation to develop in which maybe we're kind of just holding a grudge or keeping a record of wrong um, that really just needs to be wiped clean? So we have a clear conscience, praise God. We take sin seriously. We forgive freely. And lastly, uh, we celebrate confidently. Uh, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, again, he, he talks of a cup there in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, uh, verse 16. Well, we could read from verse 14, I suppose. He's talking about a situation of, of idolatry where people in that church are kind of going to other pagan temples, taking part in their acts of worship, um, perhaps as a way of kind of uh, doing business deals, basically. Um, So Paul writes them and says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Verse 16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Fascinating what it calls the cup there. Um, By the way, he would be referring to breaking bread and sharing wine in communion, uh, or coming to the Lord's table, there's a number of different terms um, for it. He's talking about that, that we've, we've got a cup now. And actually that's the occasion where, amongst other occasions like today, um, we are particularly celebrating and giving thanks for what has taken place at the cross. And he calls it there the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. And so in different situations, whether it be at a family night, as a church, we, we break bread, we share wine together, when we meet as members of the church um, during family nights, also uh, in other settings, uh, in core groups, and there's nothing to stop it happening informally between friends. But in particular, in those, in those settings, when we break bread, it is a time to give thanks. When we, when we take the cup, it's a cup of thanksgiving. And I say that because sometimes what can happen is we feel the need to, um, to really up the, uh, the somber, religious, formal aspect of coming to the Lord's table. Now, obviously, in what we're remembering when we do that, we're remembering Jesus' death. We're remembering the cup that Jesus took. And so clearly, whenever we break bread and share wine together, we're not going to be flippant or casual. We're remembering that the forgiveness that he won for us, for him, came at a great cost. So, Evidently, it's not a flippant or casual occasion, and yet it is a wonderfully joyful and thankful occasion. Um, So we're not approaching the Lord's table, as it were, just berating ourselves for not having lived the perfect life in the last week or so. No, we're coming to say, thank you, Jesus. You took the cup that we deserved so that we get the cup that you deserved. Deserved, And so when we, when we break bread together, when we share wine together, for that very purpose, remembering the Lord's death, 
and proclaiming it until he comes again. Let's believe and let's be expectant for um, an atmosphere that is thankful, joyful, hopeful, rejoicing, without being flippant, without being casual, without being superficial. It's okay. You have permission, be it at a family night or in your core group, to smile. You have permission not to feel slightly awkward and look at the floor because this is a deeply significant moment. It is deeply significant. It is wonderful. The early church devoted themselves to a number of things and it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the fellowship because I knew we're remembering something that's absolutely mind-blowingly awesome what has taken place for the, on the cross for us. We're going to do this and we are enjoying the very favour of God and the grace of God. Yeah, we're going to examine ourselves. We're going to make sure that we're in good relationship with one another before we come to it. But this is a good and joyful occasion. I would, I would encourage you, in light of what we've looked at today, to remember that if you're in Christ, now and for all time, you have a clear conscience before Almighty God. That your own personal, our own personal records of wrong have been completely wiped clean. I would encourage you also to take sin seriously. I would encourage you to freely forgive. I would encourage you to be deliberate. When things matter, we need to be deliberate with them. If you, if you know that something's not right in a personal relationship, it may just be you need to get on and forgive someone. Make it deliberate. Say it out loud. It doesn't have to be when other people are around. You could just be, you've you've closed the door. You are spending time with God. You say, Lord, I don't want this problem just to develop. Father, I forgive so-and-so. Even if it just sounds ridiculous because it's so trivial. Say it. I forgive them. Because otherwise what develops is just uh, a root of bitterness uh, that will defile many people. Forgive freely. I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage us also, always, to celebrate confidently, to celebrate cheerfully, to celebrate full of thanks um, for what Christ has done for us. Looking at these two cups, understanding the contents of each of them, this wonderful cup that's been given to us, the horrendous cup of God's wrath that has been taken away from us, I think is great cause to give thanks. Let's pray.